So today we're going to be talking with Teresa Richter. She's the president of the Cracker Jack Collectors Association. And what this association does is they collect all the toys over the years from the Cracker Jack boxes. And we're going to listen to Teresa talk a little bit about that and more about the history of Cracker Jack. I want to thank you all for listening. Here's the interview. So actually that break gave me a little bit of um, time to think about your questions. But I think in the day when people really connected with Cracker Jack, they sort of enjoyed the product, maybe even enjoyed the prizes more. And when I was growing up, so what, where my collection first started was in the 50s with the little stand-up plastic figures. And I love the cowboy and Indians. Um, I remember those. And so that's where my collection started. And then obviously it, it expanded. And, and um, as, as I got into it and learned more about the prizes going all the way back to the 1900 turn of the century. But I think that if the younger people experience it at all, it's probably related to what it meant to the parents when, as they were kids. And I just finished sort of writing an article for our newsletter. Somebody asked, why, you know, way back in the day, in the 30s, in the 20s, in the early days of photography, why were there so many family pictures, gatherings, with kids holding a box of Cracker Jack? And they would hold it up and display it, you know, like it was a big deal. And I think way back, the prizes may have been the only toys these kids had. They weren't, um, you know, it wasn't like today where you had prizes, uh, you know, toys, zillions of toys all around the house. You you played with whatever you had. And these, um, you know, in the 30s and the 20s, sometimes they were substantial little tin litho toys, trucks, trains, spinning tops, clickers that really were fun and used. And in fact, part of my collection that I really like is to discover toys that have been used. So I have a small, for instance, a small riddle book in which the cover sort of went away, got destroyed, was worn out, and somebody created a new cover for this little booklet and actually stitched the binding on it. You know, I, I've seen, um, I have a little bisque figure, which is a little ceramic bisque figure that's probably, oh, an inch and a half, two inches tall. And um, it had articulating arms. It was a little Indian um, squaw and with articulated arms, and it was broken. But somebody re-glued it. They tied a little piece of yarn around the waist to, to, to dress her up. They, they fixed it, and then, but it was clearly used and treasured. So I, you know, that's a long answer to your, your comment, but I think back in the day, those, those um, toys were treasured and people really played with them. And I think that bleeds over now to today when we say, you know, all my parents, um, you know, always gave us Cracker Jack. Why was that, you know? And I have another story about my childhood, if you want to hear that. That's one of those things that I've I've discovered is that it, it was fun to 
open a box of Cracker Jack and then see what the prize was inside. And that's where I started to really look forward to it more. And I'd imagine, I know in the past few years, the prizes have changed, so they're not quite as exciting as they used to be. But I'd imagine, particularly over the years, that that was something that that people really would look forward to. So I would absolutely love to hear your experience with that. Yeah. And just in response to that comment there, I think that um, over time, the prizes have changed, but there were ups and downs. And, you know, in regards to my own, my dad, I grew up on Lake Huron. Um, that was my dad. My dad was a physician. And at the, in the beginning, in the days with the polio scare, it was his intent to get us out of the city. I grew up in Saginaw, Michigan. And so we had a small cottage on Lake Huron. And the, as soon as school was out, my mother would take we had a family of seven children. They all went to the cottage, and we stayed there from the day after school got out until the day before school started. And um, we were sort of roving gangs of kids up and down the beach. My dad would come up only on the weekends, and on the 4th of July, he would bring up a case of Cracker Jack. That was the only time that we ever saw it just around the 4th of July, and it would get passed out. The boxes would get passed out up and down the beach, and everybody would open their Cracker Jack, eat it, I presume, take the toys out, look at them, play, play with them for a bit, and, and that was it. And when I, when I started collecting, I thought, oh, my God, there's, there's got to be a stash of Cracker Jack prizes in the cottage somewhere. Well, we didn't keep them. We didn't collect them. They sort of were looked at enjoyed in the moment, and then probably discarded, you know. So, and that leads to another uh, discussion about Fourth of July. As we know, as people know, Sailor Jack, who's the, and, and his dog Bingo, the mascot that is featured, and that figure has changed and become modernized over the years. But it was an effort by the Cracker Jack Company and especially the founder, uh, Rukheim, to demonstrate his patriotism because he was German and he came over pre-Chicago fire. Well, that's pre-1871. That was when the Chicago fire was. He came over to, from Germany to work on an uncle's farm. He was bored. He moved into the city after the fire to help with the reconstruction or cleanup. But over time, he was accused of being anti-American or not, not so patriotic. So he was a master of salesmanship and promotion. That's what, that's what he brought to the company. And he came up with, and that's when he started to use the sailor on the front of the box. And um, there's an old myth, you know, and more often than not, you will read, that 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 sailor sailor jack was his name was named after his grandson you know and he used to be on the train they cracker jack is a chicago-based company right and so the founders rukheim frederick and lewis they were brothers and then another person that was brought in right at quite early in the beginning uh Eckstein, they all summered or had second homes around the bottom of the lake up into Michigan. And so he would come out in the summer on the train 
and supposedly throw Cracker Jack off the back of the train, you know, and he obviously distributed it to kids in the summertime. Um, and he had a grandson and supposedly he was, um, some stories say he was disabled. Um, and, oh, isn't this nice? We'll name it after him. Well, that's research seems to suggest otherwise, that that was a mispromoted, maybe by Borden, uh, who owned the company for a number of years and probably, and they did a lot of marketing and a lot of promotion of the nostalgia. But anyway, Sailor Jack is related to an effort to demonstrate patriotism and red, white, and blue, and and that's persisted over the years. You know, they've had uh, even all the way up to 9-11, Cracker Jack issued a, a, a set of red, white, and blue sticker flags. Um, There's a whole series of those. That's the Sailor Jack patriotism story. I'd say that he was fairly successful at running that angle. I think about Cracker Jack and it's when you dive in and do any research, you know, you, you quickly run into that relationship with ballparks. So it, it's a big yeah. baseball thing. And I can't think of anything more American than baseball. Spending a day at the ballpark eating Cracker Jack. Well, yeah. And here's, here's the story on that, which I think is fascinating. He had no, to my knowledge or to anybody, he, he had no connection with baseball in terms of interest as a hobby, in terms of promoting in the beginning, okay? So this song showed up, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, just out of the blue by a uh, fellow Jack Nor- Norris or Nor- Norwith. And it created this free marketing over overnight kind of connection to Cracker Jack that just was one of the things that rocketed Cracker Jack in the early days. So I think that song was written in 1908. And so Rukheim, again, realizing what he had stumbled into, what the company had stumbled into, then began to market it with that connection with baseball. So then after that, you have incredible um the first series of baseball cards 1914 and 15 those are probably the most collectible most valuable of any crackerjack prizes those cards if you can find them are worth starting price at maybe 45 dollars a card and going up to several thousand dollars if you have a shoeless joe jackson or a ty cobb so extremely lucrative, extremely value, uh, valuable, I should say. And they are, you know, there have been reproductions of those in order to, in some cases, try to um, reproduce them, uh, what do you call it, counterfeit them, so to speak. So that was the beginning of that connection with ballparks and Cracker Jack. It certainly was an accident that the Cracker Jack company fell into. Then they obviously promoted it. And over time, they had contracts with Tops Baseball. And I think even through today, baseball prizes have had different series of, of the actual cards, the normal size. There was a nice series in the 80s. And then more recently, these mini cards, and it just continues even today with the digital image prizes, which we can talk about in a minute. But 
those are related to baseball. So it's it's stuck for sure. It's it, it's been and I'll tell you one quick story aside. In about 2004, something like that, Yankee Stadium decided that they were going to drop Cracker Jack from their menu because it wasn't selling. And there was such an uproar that they had to put it back on the menu because people said, well, how can you come to the ball game and not have Cracker Jack? And it's not clear that they ate it or enjoyed it, but somehow a bag of Cracker Jack in your hand at a baseball game, like you say, was such a tradition that, you know, how can you have a baseball game without it? So that's that story. Yeah. Well, and that's that's one of the things that I read when I was doing my research on Cracker Jack was, you know, Yankee, the Yankees dropping it. Yeah. But in in my last episode, I had the general manager of Sobrino de Botin on. And that's a restaurant in Madrid that has been continuously operating since 1725. And during yeah. that interview, he talked about how if you want to have longevity in today's world, you, you need a little bit of luck. And he shared some of the, the, the lucky things that they experienced over the years. But I guess having Cracker Jack being mentioned in Take Me Out to the Ball Game definitely would be one of those lucky things that could boost some popularity there for, for Cracker Jack. Yeah, and I think, again, the, the marketing aspect of it, as I said, Borden owned it for a number of years, and they put that name, Cracker Jack, on, it, it seems like they licensed it to anybody and everybody, Hallmark cards, Topps baseball cards, and I'm sort of writing an article right now for a little presentation I'm going to do at our convention. The nostalgia of it, even though the product has declined, and I'm frankly surprised that it's still being offered but the nostalgic, the um, identification with that logo continues to today, and people continue to make money off of that. The most recent one was Coach, you know, the, the um, sort of upper crust uh, leather goods people that do purses and high-end leather products. Last year, and you can still find it on, the, on eBay, they did a retro theme. Cracker Jack was one of them. And they put out wallets and keychains and lapel pins and a whole range of accessories connected to Cracker Jack. And it, they were beautifully made. So it still sells. And the other aspect, I just last week got a cartoon from somebody that uh, was in the New Yorker magazine. And there's a there's a political aspect to it. But so these two kids are eating their Cracker Jack and they pull out of the box and they go, oh, look, a, um, a free security clearance from the White House. <laughs> you know? And so um, we won't go any further than that. But so the icon, the, the logo, the image continues to be uh, nostalgically successful in making money, you know. So, and even the, as the product, you know, people say, "I in a box? Can you still find Cracker Jack in a box? Well, yes, I can from the Dollar Tree, you know, from a dollar store. But yeah. For the most part, yeah. 
I was walking through a Dollar Tree uh, a few months ago, and I actually bought a box there because, again, it's yeah. a very nostalgic thing. I think of summertime and camping, and I think of my dad, and it's one of those things yeah. that he introduced me to. <laughs> and I, I probably would have yeah. never had it in my life if it wasn't for him, right? And so it definitely yeah. has that nostalgic feel to it, and I wonder how long they can run off of that. <laughs> Well, exactly. I, you know, it, it just, I, I don't know, but it's certainly, it's not connected with the young generation. It's connected. I, and I, you know, just like a lot of marketing is very lucrative when it's connected to the baby boomers because the baby boomers are my age retiring. They have money. They spend it on those things that have a good vibe for them that they remember. And so, I, I would guess maybe that connection would last through through my generation, and then, <laughs> then I'm not sure anymore. It, you know, there are kids don't even know what Cracker Jack is. There, there's too much competition from other kinds of popcorn products that are more intense in flavor. More, you know, they've got a, a different cachet altogether, and uh, compared to simple old Cracker Jack, they just don't really hold up very well. Yeah. No, that's I, I definitely have seen that in the landscape of, I, I mean, I love popcorn. My family, we're big popcorn junkies, and we love flavored <laughs> popcorn. So we're always trying some different flavor out there. And then you have Cracker Jack, and a few months ago from the Dollar Tree, that would be the last time that I bought a box. But it, it doesn't often pop in when I'm going to buy popcorn. It doesn't it doesn't pop in my mind and think, oh, I'm going to go do Cracker Jack. I need some Cracker Jack. Now, I go out of my way, and I, I actually order it by the case through Dollar Tree in order to take to events or, you know, I have quite a collection here, so whenever I have I, – I do a thing where we have a little Fourth of July parade here, and I get all gussied up in my Cracker Jack outfit, and I ride my bike, and I throw Cracker Jack to kids, you know, uh, in the parade kind of thing. So, but I can order it from Dollar Tree and it seems to come right from the production line because it is about as fresh as you can get, which is, that's another aspect that, that has always plagued it. You know, is it, when you get it, is it, is it fresh enough that it really tastes, wow, this is terrific, you know? So you, you mentioned, you know, the, the Cracker Jack today is not what it used to be as far as flavor and taste. And that's something that I've read a lot over over the years, that it's something that has changed quite a bit in terms of mainly they've decreased the number of peanuts that go in a box. From what I've seen, it's fairly easy to make yourself. It's like molasses, peanuts, and popcorn and some other things. But how has it changed from when they were selling it on the streets in Chicago to where it is today. So on the streets in Chicago, okay, you have to realize that it wasn't such an extraordinarily different or new product. There were street vendors, I'm exaggerating, but on every corner that sold popcorn. So again, Rukheim, sort of in his very competitive nature, eventually bought everybody out, sued anybody that tried to imitate him. And in the beginning, they had several different versions of popcorn. And of course, 
they introduced this idea of the the molasses, but in the beginning, how do you how do you do that and make it uniformly so it doesn't clog together all in one big lump and and then ensure any kind of freshness? So that was one of the beginning hurdles that they had to uh, Eckstein was the fellow there that sort of was the scientist, and he invented this process of um, uh, mixing the molasses with the popcorn so it wouldn't all stick together, and then finding a, a, a box, a bag, whatever, to store it in so that it wouldn't become immediately stale. And some of the early versions, you can see pictures of it in ads towards uh, marketing stuff for businesses there might be six or seven different varieties offered. And some of it was actually what they called in a brick. So it was a mass um, molasses popcorn in a brick. That, uh, and, and in some of the prizes, early prizes, that's what it says, a brick of popcorn. So it started out that way, and then it evolved from there. Now, there, just like the story, the myth about Cracker Jack and Sailor Jack, right? There are are these stories that swirl all over the place about, oh my gosh, they don't put enough peanuts in them, okay? And every time we've asked, gone to the source and gotten an answer from somebody at the company where the production is, they go, no, it's it's not, it's impossible because peanuts are put in in the box by weight. So over time, the, the the distribution or the ratio of peanuts to popcorn really hasn't changed that much. They have a way of calculating and adding the same amount to every box. Now, I, I will say, I think it's interesting that the, the most recent boxes that I've had, somehow they've figured out a way. And I don't know if that's the coating, the way it sticks or whatever. But I think sometimes my experience now is the peanuts are kind of more uniformly mixed through the popcorn. So I feel like, oh, for every time I tip the box up and take a, a swig of, of Cracker Jack right out of the box, there's a peanut or two in there. So it's like, whoa, this is this is decent. So I've never had that idea or that perception, but I think it's something that people like to complain about. <laughs> so yeah, I really I, don't think. I guess you can't believe everything you read on the internet, right? Right. You, you, you sort of have to go back to the source and, and figure, it, figure it out. So I don't think that's changed so much. If you look at the, the recipe itself, I think, yes, they're probably using a little more fructose corn syrup, which may make it slightly sweeter because molasses by itself obviously has a bitter edge to it. Yeah. You know, so they may have um, sort of softened that bitter edge, but in general, and of course, their competition, like Fiddle Faddle or Munching Crunch, those things are sweet over the top. And I think by comparison, Cracker Jack is a fairly unsweet product. And, in, and that was one of their marketing things when they started really addressing and targeting children. One of their marketing ploys was to suggest that this is a healthy snack. So, and in the beginning, of course, it was all... It, it, it looked as if it was marketed towards adults when you look at some of the prizes. But as they marketed it towards children, um, they promoted it as a healthy snack. And then some people would say one of the first junk foods. So 
So you could say a healthy junk food snack. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would make sense. I, I've, I cook a lot of vintage recipes with, with my website. What I've noticed from cooking desserts from, you know, the 1800s, 1700s is that they aren't as sweet as we're used to today. In today's yeah. world, everything is hyper salty, hyper sweet, hyper fatty, yeah. because that's what hooks us. That's what keeps us coming back. So when you look yeah. at like Crunch and Munch and other competitors, direct competitors to Cracker Jack in that space, it, it would make sense that if Cracker Jack has remained fairly unchanged since the early 1800s, that in comparison, it's not going to be maybe as sweet or as considered as tasty by you know kids today as some of the other things yeah. out there. Now we're going to take a quick break for me to talk about what I've been cooking in the kitchen. Last week, I attempted to make my grandma's biscuit recipe. And like any grandma, as I attempted the recipe, I sent her a picture of my final product. And her response was, those don't look like my biscuits. So clearly I didn't execute the biscuits properly. And that's why I did not take pictures and post them on the website. However, from my experience making the biscuits, when my grandma shared that recipe with me, she talked about how her family, when they were growing up, they would do fried apples with the biscuits. Now, I'm someone who loves Southern cooking, and anytime I'm in a Southern restaurant, I always will order the fried apples. And they always tend to be a little bit of a disappointment. It's more like apple pie filling, except you don't get the delicious crust that you like when you're eating an apple pie. When I was asking my grandma how I should make fried apples, she didn't share a formal recipe with me, but she said apples and more butter than you probably should some oil, and more sugar than you probably should. So I decided to try to get some ratios right, and I settled on some different ratios for what worked for me when it came to the fried apples. Now with this recipe, it was one that tasted really good. The apples added a nice acidic boost to the overall flavor, and then I added pecans to it because I think pecans go in anything sweet, and I think they're absolutely delicious. But I also really like the crunch that they gave. When I'm eating apple pie, I really like the textures that come about from the pie crust with the pie filling. And I wanted to kind of replicate that at least just a little bit to give you an interesting texture element to the fried apples. So I settled on doing pecans in my recipe. You can add any nut. If you don't like pecans, feel free to add walnuts or almonds or dried fruit, whatever you want. This is really a recipe that you can use as a blueprint, and you can really customize it a number of different ways. What you'll find is that it's just really delicious. It tastes better than any fried apples that I've ever had in a restaurant. And this was my first time making them, and I think it was a wild success. So feel free to check out that recipe at ToastyKettle.com. You'll find it under the Inspired by Family tab on the website. And now back to our interview with Teresa. You know, you mentioned um, there are recipes out there. It's fairly easy to reproduce it in your own kitchen. Um, the connection with food is kind of interesting. Cracker Jack, they've dabbled, and again, through Borden mostly, 
Um, they've dabbled with all sorts of things. There was uh, Cracker Jack cereal. There was Cracker Jack ice cream. There was Cracker Jack uh, ice cream bars. Sort of the very beginning of Frito-Lay, they had things like blueberry-flavored Cracker Jack and raspberry. They dabbled with that. It didn't go anywhere, but I've tasted those. And more recently, I don't know if you stumbled into any of their holiday Cracker Jack. Did you happen to see any of that around? No, I haven't. At, at Christmas time, they issue one that's called, I don't know, Holiday Popcorn, Holiday Cracker Jack. It's, it's white. It has a white coating on it, at like, a la snow, but it's marshmallow flavored. And it's, I, don't, I like it. It's pretty decent. There are no peanuts in it, but it's, it's white and it has little flecks of Christmas flecky things on it. And um, it's only issued at, at Christmas time. And it's, it's not Cracker Jack in, in, that, in the uh, traditional sense, but it seems to sell. And they, they put that out maybe two, three years. Oh, at one point they had Cracker Jack peanut brittle. So there, there are a lot of, of foodie kinds of fooling around that <laughs> the company yeah. has done. I've seen I've seen a number of recipes. I thought that would be fun to do at a convention. You know, make a Cracker Jack Sundays, Cracker Jack, and and sort of have a competition for who makes who has the best Cracker Jack recipe. So, yeah, make it in your kitchen. See how yeah. it's done. No, I'd, I'd imagine that I'd imagine that would be one of those things that would lend itself to a lot of different applications, like a cereal or a peanut brittle, or even different flavors. And you look at the climate today, particularly, I, I've noticed it more with probably Coca-Cola than anything, but like Diet Coke, they are just going crazy with some of the flavors that they're putting out there. And yeah. uh, it, it seems to be what, or at least what they think consumers want, right? A lot of different flavors, a lot of selection. And when you were talking about the different flavors, I thought, wow, they must, they, they must have been ahead of their time. When they were doing it, you know, decades ago, they should have been doing it now because now is when I think a lot of people would be receptive to a cereal or 10 different flavors of Cracker Jack. And, you, you yeah. know, having that selection and that choice seems to be what's in well, right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the decision making is there, because just within the last couple of years, have you heard of a product called Cracker Jacks? No, I haven't. OK, so they they came out in smaller, you know, little bag things. It was clearly put out by the Cracker Jack company, but there was a lot of, you should check that out, Cracker Jacked with a D on the end. And the flavors, some of them, there was a lot of controversy because one of them had a coffee flavor involved in it. And these were intense and salty over the top. There, there were combinations of peanut butter, some of them were cheesy, some of them were coffee, chocolate, and caffeine. And so that was the one that um, the reaction was, oh, my God, how can you put caffeine in a children's product? And yeah. it really isn't a children's product at all. In fact, probably the most prevalent place I, ever, I saw it was mostly in truck stop, you know, grocery stores kind of thing. But unbelievably salty, unbelievably intense in flavor. And I, I don't know if it's making it. I, I don't even know if it's still on the market, but 
that that was one of the more recent, um, I suppose, um, trying to compete with some of these other flavorful, you know, snacks. So, yeah, and that, I, I guess that outrage would lend itself more to their marketing through time as being a healthy kids snack, right? And then they start yeah. jacking it up with all sorts of who knows what in it. And yeah. of course, they're yeah. not marketing it to kids, selling it in a truck right. stop. That would be great for a road trip or something like that to munch on. But it definitely wouldn't. It, it departs, I think, from their image that they've created for themselves. That's correct. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. When did they start including prizes in a box of Cracker Jack? In 19, about 1922, there was um, a prize in every box, but all of these require a little bit of uh, qualifiers. <laughs> There's always a, because one of the first prizes around 1900 were a series of pretty lady pins. Okay, so these were beautiful celluloid pins, and again, they were almost like cameos, round pins, about an inch in diameter. There were 24 of them. They could be identified because the paper that was inserted behind the pin, in the pin, would say Cracker Jack, five cents. Now, sometimes prizes were handed out. You would buy some Cracker Jack, whether it was pre-box and they put it in a bag and handed it to you and then handed you the prize on the side, or even the, some of the first boxes where there was not yet a prize inside, but they would give you the box and then give you the prize on the side. And again, I, I have an ad, a jobber's ad, that shows these different versions as they were first coming out. There was a Cracky Jack box that had no Sailor Jack, and there was a Cracky Jack box that said, just had Sailor Jack on it, early Sailor Jack, and then a box that says, early um, box that says, with prize. So there was clearly a transition uh, but, but by 1922, they were in every box. Before that, they were randomly in boxes. And one of the ways, for instance, we talked about the baseball cards that are so valuable. One of the ways to authenticate a baseball card was by the caramel stains on the paper of the card, which would, would render it less than perfect. But that, that was, that's kind of a charming indicator. And the same with, way with those pretty lady pins that I mentioned. You'd look at the back and you go, whoa, there's, there's stains on the, this little paper on the back, the label on the back. And it's because they, in fact, were mixed in often uh, with the Cracker Jack. And since they weren't wrapped, there was no paper on them, they would take on the, the coloring of a Cracker Jack stain, of the caramel stain on the so 1922 is the official date that's given out. But before that, randomly and or given on the side is how it worked, since they always pretty much always have been identified with some sort of prize. When it comes to prizes, not necessarily in terms of value, but what would be considered some of the best and then some of the worst prizes out there? Like if I'm a kid and I'm opening a box what am I going to enjoy most and what am I going to enjoy least over the years? Well, I would think, again, it depends on, on your age and your interests. Um, but I think 
surprises in the 30s were tin litho, many of them. And I think they're stunning. And I think you can actually play with them. They were trains. They were different types of vehicles. They, you know, there were um, spinning tops. There were clickers. And they're so colorful. The coloring on them, the paint on them are just beautiful. And when you can find those in pristine uh, condition, I'd say, wow, these are terrific. I think the 60s, there was a very interesting period. And this is another interesting aside. During the 60s, this was Borden owned them at this time again. They put out a series of put-togethers. They came attached. All the pieces were attached into a little flat square. And just like, you know, how these early um, airplanes, you know, kits kind of thing, where you break apart the pieces, all right? So, but they were the size of what would fit into a a, a wrapper, a crackerjack wrapper prize. You'd open it up, you'd break apart the pieces and put together these. And there were, some people specialized in, there were thousands of these, but it only lasted two years. And, And the stories that you hear are two. One, kids thought they were too complicated. Well, I, I don't buy that somehow. The other, the other complicating factor that entered and influenced affected prizes was Ralph Nader. Okay, prizes that were too small that a child could swallow. And I think that, and it was about that time where they switched away from the plastic and, the, and everything became paper. And mm-hmm. if there was if there was plastic involved, they had sort of a test. It was like a tube, kind of like the size of a paper toilet uh, roll kind of thing, the inside cardboard thing. But they, that, there was a test. And if that prize, if it would drop through that tube, then it was too small and you couldn't use it as a prize. So I think that correlated, in my mind, that correlated with a lot of the shift away from the plastics to paper. But in my mind, I think there's, there's some of the most incredible, and they're all series. So you, you find a few of these, and sometimes you can find them that they haven't been put together yet. They're pretty cool. But I like to have duplicates, and I always take as many as I can, the duplicates, because God forbid you take a, a pristine you know, prize that hasn't been broken apart yet, and you break it apart. Oh my gosh, you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. But if you have duplicates, you have duplicates, you can put them together and that makes a nice display. The other thing that's attractive to kids is the fact that they're just about everything that was ever produced would be in a series. Even with the put togethers, you go, oh, look at this as a cool little vehicle. Or um, I was just doing a little looking at some that they were called animal cannons. So they were actually like one of them is a duck, right? You've got this long, it's think of a horizontal. Once it's put together, you've got the wheels of the cannon in the back and the duck's neck shoots forward, right? Mm-hmm. And there was one like that. There was the duck and then another one in that series was a, an elephant. So it was a kind of a chubby thing. It had the wheels, but his trunk stuck out in the front. So again, a cannon. And uh, you realize very quickly that series. So I'm whether we're talking baseball cards, spinning tops, clicker, any and all prizes, many, 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 I would say 95% just off the top of my head were connected to series. So if you got one, 
you wanted to get another and another and you wanted to complete your set. It's another very interesting way of marketing and making children want to eat more, you know? So, and then, then there were, um, there, some people collect baseball, some people collect trains. So not only were they prevalent themes within Cracker Jack, but there were also crossover themes with people who had different interests. You know, some people collect trains, not just Cracker Jack, but Lionel and all sorts of. Um, there's one particular one that I think is really interesting. Every once in a while, I make a little mistake. There were a series of, by an artist called Carrie Cloud. He was in Central Indiana artist. He was contracted by Cracker Jack over a number of years from the Second World War years, where um, and we can come back to that with the paper through to the early plastic days. But he put out a series of figures, plastic figures that were sort of occupations. So there was a fisherman and a baker, and one of them came out and it was misinterpreted. It was supposed to be a sea captain, right? He had a a captain's hat and a double-breasted jacket on, and it was misinterpreted as it looked like Stalin. Okay, <laughs> this was right after this was right after uh, after World War II, and again, their connection with patriotism to me it's it's absurd. It really doesn't flow. And of course, it wasn't him, it wasn't Stalin, it was a sea captain, but they pulled that one from the series very quickly. And I'd, so I'd that's imagine kind of that's a not a popular time to have anything that looks like Stalin. Exactly, yeah. So they pulled that out of circulation, and that's kind of a precious one. If you've got a Stalin, you know, you, you've got, you, they don't show up too often, you know. I think, you know, in terms of, the most precious ones, I would say the early, I love the 30s. I think children would have loved that. And um, I think the put-togethers of the 60s were interesting, but again, limited to a couple of years. But there were plenty of them, and I thought they were fascinating. I love those. So that's that's some of my uh, thoughts on, on prizes, you know. Well, I'd like to go ahead and end with one last question for you. So for someone who collects a lot of these toys, when you look at the whole span of all of the toys in your collection, the year over the years, what would you say has been your favorite in your collection? Oh boy. And that might be like asking which one of your kids is your favorite kid, but (laughs) (laughs) if you had to pick one, the house is on fire, you have to pick one. What are you going to pick? Well, I think, again, I'll go back to my comment about I love finding toys that have been played with and show some creativity that that kids have marked them up, um, used them, um, played with them. Those are my favorite toys, um, and they suggest that they were treasured, you know. Um, Some of the early paper are, and, and these are becoming extremely uh, rare and possibly continue to hold their value simply because of the, the paper is more fragile, obviously. So there, there's one prize that's, it's a little, um, it's a boy. He's not terribly attractive. 
but he's a young boy and it's it's paper and he's in profile and it's about the size i would say it's three to four inches tall it's quite large about the size let's say of a baseball card a, a traditional baseball card and he has an articulated arm that comes to his mouth so there's a little tab on it and and his you can move the tab and as you move the tab his eyes close and his his hand comes to his mouth like he's putting cracker jack in his mouth right right and it's and when you do that and you go back and forth the the product comes to his mouth and he closes his eyes and then he opens his eyes and his hand moves back away and it's like he's saying mm, this is special you know this is really good and it just speaks to you. It's, it's very charming. It's, there's a little bit of humor, but it's just charming in, in terms of that. Um, the other early paper are early paper dolls, you know. Um, but in general, I, I love them all. I love displaying them. That's what I like to do, you know. Um, line them up, put them on the wall so that you can enjoy them just like, kids enjoyed them back in the day as a collector. Now I want to enjoy because the visual aspect of putting them up and displaying is stunning. And, um, sometime if you, uh, stop by, I'll show you my little museum. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd so. be great. I, you know, I think with, uh, with collections, they're best when you have them out, when you have them on display where people can see them and appreciate them. I'd like for you to take, just a brief minute and talk about the collectors association that you're with. Okay. That's terrific. Um, so it's called the, uh, Cracker Jack collectors association, CJCA. This group has been, we're celebrating our 25th year starting out in 1994, obviously pre eBay, pre internet. Um, you know, that's had its influence as well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we meet yearly in different places, um, often in Chicago, but we've met in many other places. This year, we're going to be going to be meeting in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and we're going to visit the Sluggerville, you know, museum that creates the bats. That's obviously connected to Cracker Jack. Yeah. And we're going to visit also a, a confectionery, uh, uh, and been in the family for 150 years or something like uh, that. But uh, so we try to have an outing connected to Cracker Jack, but yes, we meet yearly. Um, and we have the website is crackjackcollectorsassociation.com. Well, that's great that, you know, when I started doing my research, I was thinking that having someone like yourself, who's an expert with Cracker Jack and has a, a deep love and appreciation for it over the years, that it would be much more interesting for people to listen to you than it would be for people to listen to me. So I really appreciate your time and, and your insights and your knowledge. And thank you for sharing that with me today. But it was, it's been fun. I enjoyed it. All right. That wraps up our interview today. And I hope you enjoyed hearing a little bit about Cracker Jack. If it woke up the collector in you, feel free to check out the Cracker Jack Collectors Association. A link to their website is in the description. And I wanted to give another special thanks to Teresa for giving her time this morning for the interview. 
feel free to check them out. Really, they they do good work and they have a lot of fun. And it's just really interesting to check out some of these different collections and learn about the different toys that have been in a Cracker Jack box over the years. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. That's how other people are going to find the show. And it really does help us get noticed on those different platforms. Until next week. 